The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Uh, It's August 4th. That can only mean one thing. That is that the Common App is finally available for the class of, uh, well, for the 2016-2017 application season. Uh, I would uh, suggest that you guys keep your eyes on our blog. So we have a great blog, getintocollege.com forward slash blog. Um, There's all kinds of good stuff on there. I talk about it every week. But um, my colleague, Elise Krantz, writes an awesome series every year with tips and insight into the Common App and the different sections and the different questions that they ask. Uh, I'm sure we're going to be discussing this on future shows when we're talking about the application, but if you are eager to um, get the information a little bit sooner, you want to go ahead, subscribe to our blog, poke around in it, you'll get some good stuff there. Um, So today, our office is open. We're going to spend the bulk of today's show answering your questions as part of office hours. But first, we're going to do another in our Schools Out application workshop session. So last week, Sally guested and she and her guests talked, or Sally hosted, and she and her guests talked a lot about resumes and activities lists, which was really building on um, a conversation that began the previous week with Ian and his guests. So if you're curious about the activities section, how to fill that out, how to think about that, I would strongly recommend going to the archives and listening to last week's show and the week before that. This week, we're actually going to be talking about a few different things, including optional essays and the additional information information section of the application. Um, so joining me today to talk about this is one of my favorite colleagues, Kara Courtois, who's a former Barnard College admissions officer. Hi, Kara. Hi, Beth. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And thanks for joining me today. And I, as you know, um, we've had a series going all summer, actually, since school let out called Appropriately Enough Schools Out. And uh, the full name is Schools Out Application Workshop. And we've really just been trying to help students uh, get a jump on the process, make the most of their summer, and really talk through some different important parts of the application process and give them homework every week. So I prepped Kara in Mm -hmm. advance and she has some homework ready. But before we get to that, I think um, what I'd like to start with is this whole idea of um, I get a lot of panicked questions I don't have anything to write in this section, you know, what do I put there? I need to come up with something. Or they're saying this question is optional, but is that really optional? Do I I really, should I fill it out instead? Um, So I thought we could kind of talk about some of those 
things that can maybe seem a little tricky to uh, a student or a parent who is helping a student uh, when they sit down to fill out not only the common application, but a lot of applications. So I guess let's start with the additional information section. What do you do when a student says to you, I don't have anything for that section? Great. Your admissions counselor will love you <laughs> for that, <laughs> I would say. Um, yes. And I mean, with so many times, I just say less is more. So if you've said it all that is needed and you've answered everything they've asked and you feel like, you know, there's nothing hidden, um, then really that additional information section should be left blank. And honestly, in my opinion, the majority of students probably at least 50% or more should probably leave it blank. Um, or on any application platform that they might be using, that if they've answered those questions, you know, throughout the application and feel good about their essay and um, who they've chosen for recommendations, et cetera, hopefully, then, um, then they don't need anything there. Yeah, I completely agree with you there. Um, and I would agree with that 50% or probably more. They're going to leave that blank. It is not a problem. Let us both dispel the myth right now that you should never leave anything blank. Um, if they say only if you, you know, it's additional information. If you have something else to include here, awesome. That is not an invitation to write another essay. Um, it's, you write, you know, it's not an invitation to share some information that's irrelevant or it's not an invitation, <laughs> right? I don't even know what that, an example of that would be, but um, Definitely. That's not- I, I mean, I was going to say the most important thing that I think should go there is certainly for a student if they've had any interruption to school, mm-hmm. whether because of personal illness, something happened, you know, hopefully not tragic, but oftentimes we have seen that and it might have affected their grades. I think it's really demystifying something that might have happened in the transcript. If, and most importantly, the guidance counselor often would have already said that, so you know, having that conversation with the guidance counselor first to say, you know, what would they be covering that information, but should I say something, you know, and trying to clarify, because again, that's what that space is for, in my opinion, you know, what should go there is pertinent information that without knowing, without having it there, the guidance, the admissions counselor who's reviewing the file um, is really left in the dark and might be left to their own assumptions. Yeah, when I worked at Penn, one of the things I used to say when I did my presentations to families was, if we're going to read your file and have a question about something, how come you were absent so much in 10th grade? Mm -hmm. Why did you drop this course? Why did you switch schools halfway through your ninth grade year, right? Really, why didn't you take a foreign language in your senior year? Um, If there was a question that we were going to ask, you wanted to find a way to provide an answer. And sometimes the only place to answer the question is in the additional information section. But Mm -hmm. if we're not going to have a question, then leave it blank. Please leave it blank. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I think the most common question I get from families about that, both when I was in admissions and since um, being out of admissions, was... um, and students say to me all the time, you know, I was told just to upload my resume there. Mm-hmm. And I know in the previous um, uh, Getting In Conversation podcast last week, they were talking about that, you know, specifically. And it's not a time to repeat what's already in the activity section. You know, right. really, if the resume is going to be completely repetitive, 
and you're just doing it because your best friend is doing it, not a great idea. You know, less no. is more. Mm-hmm. Right? So the, the things that I see, you know, helpful over the years have been where the, in the common app, for instance, only has 150 characters for each of the activities that you input. And so if that's not enough to really get to the heart of what you did, whether it's a student's research abstract, which might provide a little more clarity, Mm -hmm. or why, um, for instance, if a student has done um, an internship that, you know, really can't be captured and you want to give a little bit more background to why you did that, or an independent study and you want to provide some detail about, you know, why you did the independent study, what was your, you know, sort of thesis or what was the outcome um, and what was your, the pathway that you followed. And then maybe some homeschooled students oftentimes would provide some interesting details in that additional information section. Yeah, and I, you know, I would piggyback on that and say, you know, if you have had an extraordinary number of absences and there's a good explanation for it other than mm-hmm. just... I don't hear my alarm when it goes off in the morning. Um, But, you know, maybe you had a medical issue that required you to miss a big chunk of school in a given year. If you, um, you know, some schools, the guidance counselors are more involved than at others. And if your guidance counselor or the guidance office basically says, yes, you were a student in good standing and here's the transcript and they don't really write much of a letter, um, or know you, then maybe you would take that opportunity to set, to explain, you know, I didn't do French in my senior year because um, I tried to, but it didn't fit into my schedule. If you just decided not to take it, that's one thing. You're not going to explain that. But if you actually mm-hmm. were going to take it, but it didn't fit into your schedule, and that's why you opted to do it at a community college or online, or you just couldn't do it at all, then that's a place where you might explain that. But to your point earlier, it might be explained in the guidance counselor letter. So you really want to help, uh, you want to understand if the guidance counselor will address that. If he or she is not going to, then you might want to do that in the additional information section. Um, yeah, well said. Yeah, and one other thing I would add too is that a few years ago, you could actually upload documents into that section, which was sort of, Uh, Good and bad because, you know, students would do silly things like write an extra essay and include a resume (laughs) and just put it all in one document and then upload it, you know, and they'd add like five or six pages to the application, which as Kara has been saying... Is so, and is so true, less is more. So what they did a couple right. of years ago is they basically prevented you from doing that. Now you can't upload anything. You mm-hmm. have to type directly in the box. So, right. um, you know, you're also is, limited there. Definitely. And which is a good time maybe to shout out the fact that we would never encourage just typing directly into the box. <laughs> you know, that yes. you do want to <laughs> think, think before you do. Not that you would, you know, accidentally submit. You can't do that either. You need to credit card or a fee waiver in order to do that, but, you know, always to, I always encourage students to do something in Word, you know, first, and then copy and paste it in. Yep. Spell check it, make sure it represents. Every piece of writing in your application needs to be the best writing you can do. And if Mm -hmm. you're, you know, if your essay is mistake-free and grammatical and, solidly done, and then every other part of your application features typos and bad grammar and mistakes, not only is it a disconnect uh, and not ideal because you look like you at best didn't care, and at worst, it looks like maybe you didn't write that essay. 
Um, right. So to your point, and a really good one, you want to do that in Word and then cut and paste it into the additional information section. Um, the one thing that I would, I would know is um, some students do have something that they think is really important to their story, but that they don't want to be their primary story, that they write their main mm-hmm. essay about. So do you, Kara, just what are your thoughts on a student, let's say, with a learning difference that they mm-hmm. want to disclose? You know, do they have to write their essay about it? You know, how do you recommend maybe yeah. going about that sometimes? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because I jotted that down as well as something I wanted to, to mention that, um, you know, it, I, students will often ask us, you know, sh- if I should disclose, you know, if I've been diagnosed with ADHD or I have an IEP. And, um, you know, I always encourage students, does it, if it is central to better knowing, you know, um, understanding your four years of high school, because perhaps there's been, as oftentimes we would see, maybe ninth and tenth grade were weaker, and then you were diagnosed in tenth grade, and then suddenly you have this great upward trend in your grades. And again, you don't want to leave it open to mystery. That would be a great, you know, um, explanation to put into that additional information section. It's not mandatory that a student discloses, you know. So as you and I know, but I think most students are very cautious you know, always, will it hurt my application if I disclose um, something? And, you know, if it seems like you've had a pretty steady, you know, transcript and your test scores don't indicate any sort of reason um, for an admissions counselor to think there's a learning difference or to just wonder what was going on, then, you know, then you don't need to disclose and you have to feel comfortable with what you choose to submit. Right. And so to that student who maybe decides, yes, I'm going to disclose, but I did this great um, research project and Mm -hmm. that's something exciting that I want to share. And I was thinking of writing my my essay about that. What's your advice on kind of where they might disclose? Yeah, that's that's where I would do it usually in the additional information. So I Mm -hmm. usually discourage students, you know, to I, I always encourage students in the brainstorming, you know, to have three or five topics initially to think about for their college essay and try to discourage a student to see their, you know, entire um, essay to be about a learning difference Um, unless it, you know, is just really what they feel is the most important piece to get to know them, you know, but if they have that great, you know, research project that's going to highlight, you know, more of their strengths of what they're bringing to the table today, you know, that would be a better essay topic typically and then use the additional information to do a quick summary of, Mm -hmm. you know, where they are today having discovered, you know, their learning difference and learned, you know, different ways to learn through that and with it. Right. And I think key here is I don't envision that that's another 650-word essay. That could (laughs) maybe be, right, a couple of paragraphs because to your point, your admissions officer is not looking to read a ton more information. They're looking to get what Mm -hmm. they need and kind of some quick little sound bites if possible. Yeah. And I do break it down to students that, you know, most of the schools they're applying to, whether it's highly selective or moderately selective, might have, you know, a maximum of five to six minutes, if that, you know, to review files. So they're going to skim. So don't, you know, don't fluff it up. <laughs> you just right. Get to the point. 
Make your key points and move on. Um, So we have just a couple of minutes left. And with that time, I'd love to address this whole, I think there are two different things. One is there are optional questions on many applications. There certainly are a bunch on the Common App. But then there are also optional essays. So maybe if we don't have time for both, why don't we talk about the optional questions piece? And then um, we can always talk about optional essays in a future segment of Uh, of Schools Out Application Workshop. So things like your race, things like self-reporting your test scores, what's your advice on when when a question is not a required question? Well, uh, on race, I would say, I I remember reading distinctly when we were in admissions a statistical analysis that if a student doesn't check race, that uh, I think it was upwards of 90 plus percent of the time that they are Caucasian mm-hmm. and also at least 90% of the time it felt like a student had already checked race on their standardized testing report. So, mm-hmm. you know, we pretty much knew it even if they didn't check it. Yep. So I do always encourage students to check that. It's always up to them. It is truly optional, but usually since the statistics, that's are really heavily <laughs> favored towards, um, you know, knowing uh, what they are that, that they should, you know, that I would encourage them to check that, that there's no reason not to. Um, and then... Because, right, just to clarify, it's not going to hurt you. Um, potentially, mm-hmm. it could help if you represent an underrepresented minority on that campus. It could be useful, but it isn't going to hurt you. Um, because I do think that sometimes we've heard, you know, maybe Asian students feeling like, well, yes. I'm not going to check the box, right? But, it, yeah. you know, it's, it isn't going to hurt you. They aren't, there aren't quotas. You know, they're looking for the best applicants, not the best. We're going to take 10 of the best Asian applicants and 100 of the best um, white applicants, and we're probably mm-hmm. delving into an area that we, you know, we could use three whole shows to discuss, mm-hmm. but right. for that purpose, I think your advice is good. You know, there's no harm in not checking the box, but I don't think you're really fooling anybody if you don't check the box, if you kind of think you yeah. are, I guess would be. And I did right? always plan to see that the student is hiding something because they don't really fully trust us. <laughs> you know, so, right. again, not that that informed decisions, but it's certainly, you know, I do encourage students just to be upfront. Um, and scholarships, of course, you know, occasionally that will be something that can be flagged as, wow, you know, we happen to have some institutional money, um, you know, for a student of, you know, whatever background is, is being indicated. So you don't want to lose out on those opportunities. Right, right. What about the testing section, which is optional? And I think a lot of times people don't realize that. Yeah, that I would, it really depends on the test scores. You know, it really depends on the situation. So certainly if a student is has test scores that are below the middle 50% range for the college to which they're applying to, and it happens to be a test optional school, then I would say to a student that they don't, you know, it's usually cleanest to not report on, for instance, the common application, because then, you know, every school knows if they are required, if the test scores are required, meaning it's not a test optional school, then you have to send an official score report. Um, If you're able to put in the test dates that you took, then, you know, that's important information to know that they would be receiving the information. But 
they don't have to report the scores there, especially if a student is still planning to take a later test date mm-hmm. and wants to get the application in on a little bit earlier note. But it is, you know, it is not required and therefore, you know, students don't have to feel wedded to it. But if, if it is a required statement, as many colleges require, and the bulk of them do, um, an official report, then they have to send their official report no matter what. Right. And, and um, we'll probably have a conversation a little bit later in the fall around sending test scores and which scores to send and how to understand the school's policies. But, you know, one other thing, reason, I think you hit on it, why you might want to leave that blank, at least um, if you, you know, if you have more testing left to take, is that in a perfect world, you'd get all your scores back and then decide which scores you're going to submit to the colleges So um, you might be reporting scores that ultimately you wouldn't have wanted to send. And if you've already reported them, then they've gotten them. So, um, you know, it it is a little tricky. It isn't as cut and dried as you can always leave it blank or you should never leave it blank. Uh, Because the other thing is that a couple of schools have recently introduced policies. And I think University of Chicago comes to mind immediately where they're going to take self-reported scores uh, and only if you are admitted will they require you to submit an official test um, score mm-hmm. from the testing site. So that adds an additional layer and wrinkle of do you fill that section out, do you not? But um, I think, unfortunately, we've run into the typical thing that happens in college admissions, which is it really depends. It so depends. it's going to be on a case-by-case <laughs> case, case basis. But what I can promise everyone is that we'll do a show and we'll talk more in depth about this um, you know, which scores to send, how to think about that, how the colleges look at that, and uh, really talk about that a little bit more in depth. Um, Kara, thank you so much for joining me today. We didn't get to the optional essay question. We'll have to do that another time, but I really appreciate you taking the time. You're welcome. Do you want my homework assignment, or do you yes. want to come back Yes, to sorry, okay. the homework yes, assignment not before a we go to the break. <laughs> yes, so um, quick thing is that I think it's the perfect time to create a deadlines chart. So whether you want to use Excel, Word, Google Docs, you don't have to get fancy. This is also a great parent task, but to create a document so that you're, you've got all the colleges that you're currently planning to apply to, one column with college name at the top, one column with what type of application do they take, whether it's Common App or their own application or maybe Coalition App, the deadline that you're applying for, whether it's regular decision, early action, or a binding early decision, whether the test requirements, and then most importantly, what essays, you know, if any, are required. Do they have, mm-hmm. you know, more than one essay, and what are the questions, so that you can have that in one spreadsheet. That is absolutely it's the perfect time to be working on that and get it done, you know, ASAP. Yes, great, great homework. That is something that you and I are both having all of the students we work with individually do. It's something that we recommend to all the families that we talk to on the phone. So, yes, you want to do that. My homework, I can't believe I almost went to the break without giving homework. Thank you, Kara. Um, no problem. My, my homework is for all of the lit- listeners who are going to be applying to Common App Schools. And almost if, even if you're not, if you're kind of eager to just take a look at what an application looks like, go create a Common App. Uh, login and password. Make sure you note down what your login and password are so that when you come back, you can log back in again. You want to complete, if you're a rising senior, you want to complete what you can. um, Add in your colleges if you know what those are um, or if you know at least what a couple of those are. 
uh, you might realize in doing that that actually some of your colleges are not on the Common App, so that's something good to know, and that'll be useful when you enter the information into Kara's the uh, spreadsheet she's recommending. And then remember to pay attention to our blog because we do have that series that'll be coming out soon and it's going to have lots of insight in com- into completing the different sections. Uh, thanks again, Karen. I really appreciate uh, your time today. Thanks so much, Beth. Take care. All right. We'll be right back. And when we get back, we're going to be answering your listener questions. So don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. Um, We started the show with our Schools Out application workshop series, and we were talking about the additional information section and then a couple of the optional sections um, that you might find on the Common App. Uh, And we're going to be doing continuing with our office hours in the next two segments, and we're going to devote all of this time to answering your questions. Before we get to the ones that you've emailed to us, um, and thank you so much for sending those in. And if you're curious about what that email address is, it's gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. So if you have questions, send them in. But in addition, we are also on Facebook, and um, Shannon Vasconcelos posted a video right at the top of the show. And so if you happen to be listening and you happen to have Facebook nearby and you want to send us a question via Facebook, 
Um, we'll do our best to answer it live on the air right now. So I would encourage you to do that. Um, with that in mind, I'm very excited to welcome Shannon Vasconcelos to the show. Uh, she's a former Tufts University financial aid officer, and she works with me here at College Coach. And she is going to answer all the finance questions because I know enough to be dangerous and certainly not enough to be helpful. Um, so thanks for joining, Shannon. You're very welcome, Beth. Happy to be here. Great. And then I'm also excited to welcome my colleague, Lauren Troiano. Uh, she is going to ask us the questions that people have been sending in. So, Lauren, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, and why don't we start with a finance question for Shannon? Okay, great. Our first question is from Maria, who wants to know what are financial aid decisions based on? Also, what qualifications are considered for school scholarships? scholarships and what other scholarships outside are legit. Okay, Maria. So so that's a lot. I could, you know, <laughs> this is basically the question that I answer all day, every day. Um, so I'll try and squeeze it into to just a few minutes. Um, so essentially, the, the biggest source of aid is um, money from the colleges themselves. There's two different kinds, need-based aid and merit aid. The need-based aid, based on the family's finances, mostly on their income, uh, fairly complicated formula, but um, to give you just very ballpark guidelines, if you're applying to state schools, I'd say your family income has to be less than around $100,000 to qualify for any need-based aid. Uh, at the more expensive private schools, it can go up to around 200000 before need-based aid eligibility runs out. Uh, but again, it's a complicated formula. Every school has a net price calculator on their website, so play with that to figure out if you'll actually be eligible for need-based aid at any given school. Now, merit scholarships, that's the other big pot of money that the schools have. That's not based on your family's finances at all. That's based on how badly the school wants to recruit your particular child. Um, they're gonna, the colleges use the merit scholarship money as a recruitment tool. They're going to award it to students who are above average for that school. Students are going to help raise the school's average GPA or test scores, you know, students who are going to m help them move up in the rankings that are also oh important to the colleges. Um, so look for some schools where you're above average. That's how to maximize this merit scholarship money from the schools. And I have to say, you know, above average, it's all relative to the applicant pool to the schools you're applying to. So, you know, while a straight-A student, you know, is above average in the grand scheme of things, an above-average student, they're not going to be an above-average student, you know, at Harvard, at Princeton, at Yale. They're, they're kind of, you know, almost everyone who applies is a straight-A student, so they're not going to see scholarship money because they're not going to stand out from the crowd. So just keep that in mind when you're deciding what schools to apply to. So the biggest money comes from the schools themselves, either in the need-based aid or the merit aid. The much kind of smaller piece of the puzzle is private scholarships. There's thousands of them out there. Uh, the catch is that with the Internet nowadays, they've become very hard to win because you've got so much competition. Um, you might want to focus on more of kind of local community-based scholarships where you're going to have less competition or scholarships that have very specific requirements that are going to um, cut down on the, uh, the applicant pool for you. Um, in terms of, you know, what scholarships are legit, one rule of thumb is you shouldn't have to pay money to apply for a scholarship. Uh, and actually, um, our colleague Kathy Ruby was just on the um, show last week talking about scholarship scams. So if that's something you're concerned about, definitely um, take a listen to last week's show. She gets into much, much more detail about what you want to look for in a legitimate scholarship. 
And I will just piggyback on that, Shannon. Um, a couple of weeks ago, you and I did a segment together on quirky scholarships, right, and how to find those. Um, so the other piece of advice I would have for this listener is, Go through the archives. Um, There's all kinds of really good information in our archives about all of these questions that you've asked. So hopefully Shannon gave you a really nice high level. If you want to dig dig deeper, go to the archives. That's why I'm always telling you guys, you got to go to the archives. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What's our next question? Okay. Our next question is from Mark. And he says, my son scored a composite 35 as a sophomore this past April on the ACT. His writing score was a 21. It was submitted for rescoring and nothing changed. ACT has come out now and said they are changing the scoring system going forward. He is a 4.0 student, so his writing skills are good. Should he retake the test to improve his ELA? He is a STEM student and will be applying to likely Ivy's and MIT, Caltech, and Stanford. Okay, so Mark, first of all, congrats to your son. 35 is not shabby, especially given that he's a sophomore. Um, that's a pretty good score, uh, and it's certainly a pretty good score for the schools that you're mentioning, um, where I do tell students that really you want to look at a minimum of a 34 on the ACT and probably 35 or 36 to really be in the ballpark um, because they are just that selective. Uh, A couple of things. Obviously, his English and reading scores were quite high or he would not have gotten the 35. So I can assume from the composite score that those sections will show that he's quite strong in that area. Um, A second thing is that many schools uh, have started to talk about dropping the writing requirement altogether. So they're not going to be looking at the writing score because the SAT made it optional. Now they're sort of considering, well, it's optional for the SAT. It's optional for the ACT. You don't have to worry about taking it. Um, That said, I couldn't... you know, say that every single one of the schools that you mentioned has that policy, and you never know how that's going to change because your son is only a sophomore. Um, The good news is he cannot go down from his 35. Once you have that 35, it's not going to be displaced if he takes it again and gets a lower composite score. So if you're, I would say he could be done with the testing, but if you are concerned um, about that 21 I believe the colleges know and understand what happened and how those writing scores are all out of whack. We're seeing it everywhere, which makes me think they will be used to seeing it when those come in and will likely discount it. But you can never know for sure. Um, So one thing that your son might consider is taking the ACT one more time. Uh, to see if he has more luck on the writing section. The the whole thing is a little up in the air because they changed the way they score it. Now they're going to change it back. Um, given that he's only a sophomore, maybe you want to wait until the dust settles a little bit before he takes it again. So maybe towards the end of junior year would be a good time for him to retake it rather than rushing to retake it now. Um, and again, I want to be clear. I'm not saying he's sh- definitely must retake it because that 35 is pretty awesome. But if everyone's sort of concerned and he has three hours on a Saturday, four hours on a Saturday to go and take it again, he cannot do worse because the 35 is what the schools are going to consider. To me, there's sort of no harm in retaking if he is committed enough to it. We'll go back to a finance question actually from Shannon. Um, My daughter's My daughter is interested in a large university setting, preferably out of state. I see that many small private colleges offer many merit aid opportunities, especially for out-of-state students. 
However, I hear that it is uncommon for large universities to do the same. Is this true? Um, so, Shannon, first of all, I love you already based on your name. Um, the distinction for me, and kind of in my mind, it doesn't break down into small colleges and large universities. Um, I think the two distinctions that are probably relevant are public colleges versus private colleges and well-known colleges versus less well-known colleges. Um, in terms of kind of public versus private uh, as a general rule, you would expect to see kind of more scholarship offers, possibly larger scholarship offers from private schools compared to public schools, simply because the private schools, because they charge so much money, they have a lot of money, <laughs> they have money to give. Um, so if you were kind of a betting person and you were applying to two, you know, equally selective kind of everything else is exactly equal, just one's public, one's private, you would expect the larger scholarship offer from the private school just because they have, you know, money to burn, essentially. Um, now, I kind of hate even saying that because I, I went to a public school. I got a very nice scholarship offer from a public school, so I'm not, certainly, certainly not saying public schools don't have scholarship money to give. Just kind of if you were a betting person, you know, the averages would go with the private schools. Um, the other kind of distinction is kind of how well-known the college is, how popular it is. As I think I mentioned in the, in the first question, you know, the, the colleges use their scholarship money as a recruitment tool. Um, they use it to entice students who might not otherwise enroll if they hadn't shown them some money. So very, very well-known popular schools that have students you know, just throwing themselves at them to try to get in don't have to give out scholarships, or not at least not much in terms of scholarships, because um, they don't have a problem recruiting students. Um, and you'll see that at the Ivy League schools that don't give any merit scholarships whatsoever because they don't have to. A less well-known school, you know, maybe it's a smaller school, maybe it's, you know, kind of very regionally kind of popular, but a lot of kids from out of state don't know about that school. That school has to work much harder to recruit students they have to show students the money in order to entice them. So that's kind of what I would think about in terms of, you know, what colleges, uh, you know, might be the most generous with scholarship money. Uh, you know, private schools in general have more money, though if they give you a scholarship, is it going to be enough to bring it down to the price of a public school, um, at least an in-state public school? Sometimes, but pretty rarely. Uh, and then kind of how well-known are they? Is, is this a college that, you know, everyone is applying to. If so, it's good. the scholarships are harder to come by. Um, so again, thinking about schools, where your daughter is going to stand out, where she's going to be above average, and again, maybe some kind of hidden gems, some schools that are less well-known, um, those are the ones that you might be most likely to see scholarship money at. But again, it's not to say that large universities, that, that somewhat popular universities, and, and certainly not that, that public schools don't give any scholarship money. Um, they certainly, all those schools, kind of in general, most schools have some scholarship money to give, just kind of the more popular they are, the harder it is to come by. Um, so again, you just really need to make sure that your daughter will stand out from the crowd at that particular school. That's how to maximize the scholarship possibilities. All right. I think we can do one more question before the break. Okay. So our next question is from Rasha. 
who wants to know, does it matter if there are too many students from the same school applying to the same top colleges? Uh, great question. Certainly one we get a lot. Let's start with the fact that there are no quotas. So a lot of times what gets people most concerned about this idea is that, well, they're only going to take four kids from our school. So if 20 are applying, um, you know, how do I know that my kid is going to be one of the four? Um, what I can tell you is that this, each school out there is looking to enroll the most interesting class that they can enroll every year. Um, that's going to mean different things to different schools, but if we look at the most selective level, and I think when Rasha says top colleges, that's probably what she's talking about, um, they are not looking to make sure they have one student from every high school in the country. They're looking to certainly make sure they have one student from every state in the United States and as many different international countries as possible because they like to talk about diversity and that's an important area of diversity for them. Um, but they're really looking for their most interesting class. And I can tell you as an admissions officer, there might be, there was a year um, where there was a small high school and we got five applicants and we admitted all five applicants from that high school because they all had something different and unique to offer us and they were um, qualified and interesting each in their own different way. If all five of those applicants had looked very similar um, and none of them had stood out, we might have admitted none in another uh, in another year, or, you know, like I said, if they didn't have different things to recommend them, we may not have admitted any of them, or we may have admitted only one of them. Uh, and it wouldn't necessarily have been the one with the absolute highest GPA or the best test scores. It probably would have been the one who had the greatest um, collection of interesting things. So the test scores were good, the, the grades were good, the rigor was good, and then the stuff outside of the classroom, the extras, were certainly interesting and somewhat unique and the essay was great and the recommendation letters were good. So um, is it a problem? I mean, you just have to keep in mind the fact that the student, when there is a large group of applicants from the same high school as your student, or if you are the student, if a lot of students are applying to the same school from your high school, that you are going to be um, also not just considered against the larger applicant pool, but also against you, the applicants from your high school. And so if you know that you look fairly similar in many ways to some of those other applicants and the other applicants perhaps have better grades or better test scores or something a little bit more special when, that they've done outside of the classroom, then you're going to know that you may not have as good a chance um, at that school. Uh, I always recommend that students try to look a little farther afield than just where everyone else is applying because it might be a little bit easier for them to stand out if they're not competing against 20 kids from their high school along with 20,000 kids from other high schools all over the country and the world. So uh, is it a problem? Not necessarily. Again, no quotas, but you do have to be realistic about how well you're going to stack up against the competition from your school. Um, all right, with that, I think we need to go to a quick break, and then we're going to come back. We're going to keep answering your questions, so don't go away. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. 
If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we have a lot of questions and not a lot of time, so let's get right to them. Uh, Lauren, do you have one for Shannon? I do. Shawnee is asking about having a FAFSA and $200,000 plus in an annual income and what her chances of a merit-based scholarship is. She asks, what is considered in determining need? I almost feel like being a responsible person and saving might go against us when applying for aid. I have friends who live the high life, have no savings, travel the world, and their children got tons of aid. Okay, yeah. So uh, first of all, I think... That one thing I would caution is just to be careful when comparing your situation to others. Uh, I hear kind of complaints like this all the time, um, but you really don't know the whole story, and every application process is really totally different. Um, so you know, you, you think your your next door neighbor they make tons of money, but they got all this financial aid. You don't really know the details of that family's finances. You don't know if that aid that they got was need-based or merit-based aid. A ton depends on the the school that the student is applying to, you know, how much they cost, how much money they have, uh, how the student fits into what the school is looking for. So that's just my first kind of overarching rule. Just be careful when when comparing your situation to your friends. Uh, It's generally not particularly helpful. I'd really focus on your family and not worry so much about everybody else. Um, But as for um, merit scholarships, makes absolutely no difference what kind of money you make. Merit scholarships generally just based on the student. Uh, and again, I, I talked about it in other questions, how badly the school wants to recruit them. Apply to some schools where you stand out, that's how you get the merit scholarships. Uh, in terms of the need-based aid, um, Shawnee mentioned they had about 200000 of annual income. Um, the need-based aid possibilities are not good at that kind of income now if they're not, you know, too far over 200000 it's po- possible there might be a little need-based aid at maybe the most expensive private schools. So it's certainly worth applying for financial aid, but I wouldn't expect significant amounts of money. And it's not because of their savings at all. The financial aid formula is really driven 
um, to a huge extent by your income. It's your income that throws you out of range for financial aid. The savings play a very, very small role in the calculations. Um, you're, you're not really punished for saving. That, that tends to be a misconception. Your savings will help you pay for college much, much more than it will cost you in financial aid. The savings play a very, very small role in the financial aid calculations. And especially in this situation where the income alone, it sounds like is enough to throw this family out of eligibility for need-based financial aid, any savings you're doing is fantastic. It's going to help you pay for college because you're probably going to have, again, barring merit scholarships, you're not going to qualify for need-based aid even if you had no savings based just on your income. So any savings you have is going to be very valuable to you to help you pay for college. So please don't feel like you made any kind of mistake by saving. Um, that's the best thing you can do in terms of preparing for college. It really doesn't hurt you um, in terms of the financial aid calculations. It plays a very small role. It's, financial aid is based to a very large extent on your income. Um, so you definitely want to understand that. But again, for, so need-based aid possibilities sounds like for you, Shawnee, not great. But merit scholarships, certainly in the realm of possibility, just apply to some schools where, where your child's going to stand out. All right. Uh, our next question is from Lynn. And she says, hi, my son has a fair shot at an Ivy and really wants it, but money is a big factor, and he's not eligible for enough demonstrated financial aid. Can't apply single-choice early action without giving up a chance at a full scholarship at a less competitive non-Ivy since a non-Ivy requires an early action app for a scholarship, but an Ivy single choice early action prohibits early action at another private. So, will applying regular decision at an Ivy significantly reduce his acceptance versus single choice early action? Okay, well, there's a lot going on here, and one thing I would point to immediately, and I bet Shannon's thinking the same thing, is the whole concept of money is a big factor. Exactly. So if you already know that he's not going to get enough demonstrated financial aid, and you already know that you can't afford it if he doesn't, I almost want to say I'm not really sure why you would apply to the Ivy, because they're not going to give you scholarship money. They don't do merit scholarships. Um, although I suppose it's possible he could get some outside scholarships, although he probably should be looking for those now and applying for those now because those schools are quite expensive. However, putting all of that to the side, um, what I can tell you about um, gaining an advantage in the admissions process, it is very easy to go and look at statistical information and then come away saying, well, it's obviously easier to get in if you apply single choice early action. I'm here to tell you that even though it is counterintuitive, that is actually not the case. So the acceptance rate is higher in single-choice early action, but unlike early decision, which is binding, so single-choice early action, they don't let you apply to other places in the early round. However, they are not asking you to commit to them. So that means that when they give you their decision, if they admit you, you don't have to go. You can continue to apply to other places and maybe ultimately decide on a different school. What that means to them is that there is zero, zero reason why they would admit you in single-choice early action unless they really, truly find you to be phenomenally well-qualified and they feel confident that they know they're going to get 25,000, 30,000 more applications that are going to be really good and they feel so strongly that this kid is really spectacular and there isn't going to be anyone else who's going to come in who's going to be better. Um, so sure, 
the acceptance rates can show as slightly higher, but it's also a self-selecting pool of students who will make the decision to apply to that Ivy um, in the early round and forego all other early opportunities. Um, And usually it's because they are phenomenally well-qualified. In your situation, I don't really know about your son's qualifications. I don't really know what that situation is. Um, But what I can tell you is that I would strongly encourage him to apply early action to the school where there's scholarship possibilities. That seems like the financially sound choice to make. And I do not see it harming his chances at the single choice early action school. They still admit the majority of their applicant pool in the regular decision round. So it's not like all the slots will have been filled. And like I said, even those students they accept in the single choice early action round are not all going to attend. So unlike early decision, if you fill half the pool, you only have half of the spots left. It's a different story um, in the the Ivies with early action. Um, okay. I don't know what the questions, the next question is on the finance side, but we literally have about a minute. So I don't know if there is a question you can ask that could be answered in a minute, but let's take a shot. <laughs> um, okay. Well, our next finance question is what does it take to get scholarships for all of these Ivy League schools? <laughs> You don't yes, get so Beth, Beth really just covered it. They do not give merit scholarships. None of the Ivy League schools give any merit scholarships whatsoever. So what does it take? It takes being poor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you do, um, being facetious, you don't actually have to be poor, but you have to have you know, relatively mo- moderate income. Again, probably not too much more than 200000 to get money from an Ivy League school. It's going to be in the form of need-based aid. It will not come in the form of a merit scholarship. So that's what you have to be prepared for at an Ivy League school. If you don't have financial need, you're paying full price, uh, just like the folks from the, the last question. Um, so yep. you do, while Ivy League schools can be great options if you're able to get in, which most of us are not able to get in. Um, I, so for if you're a very outstanding student, sure, throw an Ivy League school or two on your list and see what happens. But you want to make sure that you have some um, more like safety schools on your list, too, where you might see um, more significant scholarship um, offers. Again, if you're not going to have financial need. If you have financial need, according to the calculations, Ivy League schools are incredibly generous with, with their financial aid, more generous um, than just about any other schools out there. Um, so if you have financial need, great. Um, you, you can see lots of money from an Ivy League school, but if you're don't have need according to the calculations, and again, run a net price calculator on the school's website, um, you're not going to get anything. So you'd be looking at paying full sticker price, and that's what you'd have to be prepared for. All right. Thank you, Shannon. That was awesome. Very quick. Very quickly. Thank you to Lauren uh, and Shannon and all of my guests today. Appreciate you being here. Um, A few important notes before we wrap up. Next week, I'm actually not going to be hosting for the next four weeks, so you will be enjoying Ian and Sally as your hosts, and next week Ian's going to be hosting. He's going to be talking about the French baccalaureate. Uh, They're also going to do the Schools Out application workshop, and we're also going to do a finance section around how to budget and learn to live like a student uh, versus someone living at home with all the comforts uh, therein. Uh, Reminder, if you do have questions, send them in to us. We only get through a handful, uh, but they're good questions and we appreciate them. Getting in voiceamerica at gmail.com. Uh, don't forget about our blog, uh, getintocollege.com forward slash blog. You can download our show on iTunes and rate us while you're there. We're on Pinterest and LinkedIn, and we are here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. 
Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.